on this week's Devils in the Details. United scraped past Newport County in the FA Cup. Is there anything noteworthy we can take away from this match? And also, given the lack of narratives from recent weeks, what else can we piece together about this side? case. How did you enjoy United's Sunday afternoon FA Cup clash against Newport County? I have so many thoughts, but I'm not sure a lot of them are productive. I will say this. I think you cannot avoid the the question of the role of the manager in all of this anymore. I I don't think we can even have a, a podcast episode where we talk about anything without starting with, I think a change is needed. And I think now is the point in the season where I'm going to start thinking about who who is next. Because I don't even... I, I have I, I would put the odds of him turning this around at very close to zero. Uh, yeah, that's just... That's, that, that's what comes to mind when you ask me about what I watched today. Yeah, I mean, I think we've basically set our stance on this. And I almost think seeing it play out against Newport County really hammers home what the tactical issues are with this side because you know this side could come in just vibes and retain possession and they would walk over Newport County it wouldn't have been difficult Newport didn't even play particularly well not to take away credit from them for some of the goals that they produced but there was nothing really there and United's insistence on just lumping the ball forward at every opportunity and being very easy to play through I think this is a great match to illustrate why those things just don't work um, if you want to be a competitive side at the top level. And yeah, they exposed United and almost made them pay for it in what would have been a historic defeat. And once again, I think from the perspective of us as podcast creators, it's really difficult for us to even figure out what to talk about. I think last season there were constantly new and interesting things going on. And in the summer, you have a lot of activity to talk about. But beyond that, like... I don't really know what we should be saying about this side and what we should add that isn't currently already known because at this point it just becomes clear that uh it just becomes clear that we need to make changes and so everything else becomes relatively unproductive at this point. Yeah, I agree. So 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 where do we start? We we had a few good questions about this. That I think we, could, we do have a couple good questions. Um, we'll start with this one from Svante Wettergren. Did I give that a good pronunciation? Please correct me if I didn't. As Case has mentioned, Eric is probably the best manager in Ajax's history. During the 21-22 season, Ajax was also among the top teams in Europe, assessed across a wide variety, uh, uh, assessed across a wide range of parameters. His first season at United was a positive one. How did things suddenly turn sour for him? Okay, a few things. First, I didn't technically say he's the greatest manager in their history. What I did say you is that... it was the best Ajax team. Exactly. Um, beyond that, 
Yeah, it's a good question. Nevertheless, I think it's a few things. I think first of all, the tactical scrutiny that you undergo when you're in the Premier League is just far, far higher. I, you don't see, like for instance, Go Ahead Eagles is not looking to like tactically exploit Ajax in the same way that Brighton can go and do. Um, so I think that is a huge part of what the exchange is here. Like, I, I think that's also a big reason why things worked a lot last season and have sort of, we've seen them degrade over time. That is down to an adjustments. And, and we've seen that. And I think we've talked about that. There have been tactical adjustments by opposition uh, sides that are clearly a result of opposition scouting um, that have resulted in United's approach to matches functioning less uh, less frequently uh, and less comprehensively. So I think that's a part of it. But again, I would take this back to game model. And I think just fundamentally the game model that he's pursued is different from that which he pursued at Ajax in a, in a few ways. Um, I think I would start with he's tried to embrace this idea that the side needs to be transitional. And to be fair, his Ajax sides were were quite transitional. Um, but I think the tolerance for frantic possession play, trying to move the ball vertically down the pitch, trying to score on the counter, is just way too high. Uh, the trade-off between playing at speed versus controlling possession, it, we do not, the balance is wrong. And, and it's not the same balance that he struck even in the Champions League with those sides. So I think that is a, a big part of it. I think those would really be my two key points. This is just a much more demanding tactical environment, and he has not adapted very well, and he's changed in very specific ways, not as drastically as I think people perceive, but in very specific ways that are detrimental and just bad for the side. So that would be my, my answer for the most part. Aaron, do you have something to add? Not directly to what you just said, but in terms of the question, uh, it talks about his first season at United being a positive one. And obviously, if you listened to this podcast last year, you'd know that we agreed with that. Um, last season's results and largely what the team did tactically was a measured success, I would say. But I do think that it's probably worth noting that Case and I were quite forgiving of certain aspects of United's tactical play last season that were not present because we gave Ten Hag the benefit of the doubt that they would be present this season. Um, the best example being building out of the back. Last season, I think it became very clear very early that United didn't have the personnel to play out of the back. But this season now, they do, and they're still not deploying tactics with which resemble what functional teams at playing out of the back actually do. Um, and I think last season, because Ten Hag's Ajax were such a such an effective team at getting from one end of the pitch to the other, we kind of figured that Ten Hag would be more successful in instilling that at United with better players. And I think that's somewhat a... Somewhat a mistake on our part, because I, not that I think it was a completely foolish assumption, but it was an assumption. Like, it, it, it could have been possible, perhaps, and I haven't gone back to watch his Ajax to see this, but it could have been possible to determine that there was no clear proof that he, he was coaching a side that was able to systemically play through opposition. 
Um, that Ajax side also had a number of players who were really, really press resistant in deep areas in both editions. Frankie Diong, Daly Blin, Lissandro Martinez, uh, Urian Timber. Yeah, I think I think Onana. that I think there's there's two things, right? Like he's still last season in particular, you could say just did not have the same press resistance in his personnel. But now I think it's difficult to make that argument. I, I don't think that the players United now have healthy and deeper areas can't play out of the back. Uh, and we've talked about this before. So I really do think it comes down to there was definitely, this was a false positive <laughs> in terms of identifying whether he could coach a side to functionally play out of the back. And now you could say, I think a part of that is a the youth infrastructure at Ajax and the, the previous managers and just the general ethos means players already have an innate intuition about how to go about getting the ball down the pitch in tight areas. So there's that aspect of it, right? That still doesn't explain nearly enough of it. Uh, so then you have, I think, another aspect of it, which is he doesn't... Uh, how, how do you say the objective has been different here. They're trying to play faster. They're trying to play over the top. There's less commitment to the idea that this is how you get the ball down the pitch. Those are related. And then I think another aspect is a lack of adaptation in terms of build-up shapes to a different pressing environment. Uh, and I think the Premier League is just the most sophisticated pressing environment in the world and United have a couple of shapes from which they build up that don't account for how the opposition is pressing them and aren't dynamic enough. And yeah, I think you can see this. Like they're just, there are certain situations where certain passing exchanges should be happening or there should be a secondary option and there isn't. Um, and so I think that is, you know, Maybe something difficult to foresee because it's difficult to say like how adaptable is somebody going to be. You don't know how somebody's going to a manager is going to behave in a new context until they're in the new context. But yeah, I think that's definitely something that I focus on now that we're. I think we're probably going into a, a new cycle of looking for a new manager. Something I'm going to be focusing on is really trying to avoid a false positive where we say, okay, I really like this guy, and it's because his tactics work in this way. I really want to. Personally, I want to be more interrogative of how things might change relative to league and also, yeah, just like weak points and, and consider like, okay, what if they do change nothing? How does that manifest itself in the context of the Premier League? Yeah, I don't think if I could go back, I don't think my assessment of Chan Hag would be that he can't do this. I think my assessment would be that it's a risk that he cannot do this. Um, which is a key distinction because I think what you're going to find is a lot of suggestions that, you know, a new potential coach is the one and the coach has definitely has strengths in every case and definitely has weaknesses in every case, but it's going to be more about, um, a level of situation bias that leaves kind of some unknowns that we're just going to have to take the risk on. And I think a large factor in what should go into United's next coach is what are they willing to actually take those risks on? So, for example, with someone like Deserby at Brighton, 
I think now we have a strong level of confidence that he is able to coach teams to play out of pressure, invite pressure, and then play through it in particular. Um, and then as a result, create better opportunities for his team. However, I think a risk I might see with someone like Deserby is that Brighton, perhaps in personnel, aren't quite at the level where they're employing the type of rest defensive tactics that prevent them from being played through, especially in transition scenarios. And so if we were to hire Deserby, I think we would be betting on his ability to, with a, with better players and more resources, build a side that could prevent the opposition from playing through United the way that Brighton get played through in transition scenarios on occasion. That's like one example. And that doesn't mean that Deserby can't do it. It just means that based on his time at Brighton, it's a risk that he might not be able to do that in the face of more resources. And that's also why you can get to the point where you say someone like Pep is the ultimate coach and a low risk because he's had basically infinite resources and he's produced basically infinite outcomes. And so you can say there's no amount of resources we can provide him where he's stepping up to us and he's not going to be able to meet that match. Um, But it gets more difficult as you go down to the table and you look at, okay, we need to essentially promote someone into this role. Um, How are we going to find someone who will be able to do better than they were um, and and reach greater heights than they were reaching with their previous team? Because there are very few coaches to whom that won't apply when they join United. Yeah, this is a good question. I I think often about this because I think I've already said this, but in in different terms, there are three variables that go into this. Was he simply a different coach than we appreciated when he came? Definitely an aspect of that. Two, was there a, a lack of consideration of his adaptability? Definitely an aspect of that. And three, Did he change his approach relative to, you know, historical club approach, the way he claims to have done, in a way that is ineffective and misguided? And I think there's a big aspect of that as well. Match control has not been a priority in the way that it should be. Well, whoever it's coming from, and I, and it's definitely, at least partially, Ten Hag, it's a massive flaw. Like, it, you at this stage of football... And at the level United are at, you need to control matches and dominate territory. It's not a negotiable. I don't understand. I think today made it so clear. There's no, absolutely no reason to be going away to a League Two side in the FA Cup and trying to score on the counterattack as your primary means for chance creation. I don't care what your side strengths are. Your like you, your team shouldn't be built that way. You should you shouldn't be that shouldn't be your approach against a side that you have such a quality differential against. You should, because it just increases variance in a way that is not good for your likelihood of winning the match. Like, they shouldn't have the ball in your half. You shouldn't have the ball in your half. <laughs> like, you should be in the opposition half, breaking the door down. And that kind of, I think, actually transitions into another question we got, which was about Hoyland. And we had a few questions about Hoyland. And each of those is something to the extent of, uh, is there... Uh, a, a tactical reason why United's you know, forwards don't look for Hoyland uh, in crossing situations. Is there, t- is there a reason why does the target man rule not suit him? Uh, why is it that uh, United's 
fullbacks and wingers uh, can't seem to find him in crossing situations. Part of that, I think, is something that I felt is epidemic at United for the last decade, which is just pass-shoot decisions from wingers are awful. Awful, 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 and it's it's a club culture thing. It's because our wide players have been taught to be so goal-oriented, their tendencies have gotten completely out of whack. So I think there's an aspect of that. But I think more importantly, crossing is a volume game. Crossing works when you cross a lot and from the right positions. And if you are not getting into the right positions and you are not crossing a lot, everyone's going to look like a bad crosser. Because crossing is just fundamentally a low percentage way to create goals. Now, square balls across the six-yard box are a different beast, and I'm not discussing that in this instance. And obviously that is a problem and a reason why Hoyland has scored fewer goals and he doesn't get service. But in terms of like balls in the air, cutback situations, you have to get in those situations in a much higher volume to see the fruit of those those crosses. Um, and so like, you know, I'm not dismissing. I, I think Anthony has shown himself to be a poor crosser. I think Garnacho just does not cross enough, period. Yeah, I think those are the two primary things. Dallow is an oddly poor crosser given how strong he is technically otherwise. I think Shaw is the only like only of the four that you saw play today that you can confidently say is, is strong in that situation. And that's obviously a problem in and of itself. But much bigger problem, you don't have, you don't dominate territory, you don't create overloads, you don't create crossing situations, you don't score goals from crossing situations. It makes Hoyland look a lot worse than he is. That's my take there. Yeah, it's also a territory thing, I think. Like, when you don't dominate matches, it's just a game of time. Your striker has less time to get on the end of chances and goals. And that's not to diminish the role of wingers. Like, I I think the wingers do make bad decisions. And there were a couple of times today when when Hoyland could have had a 40 or 50% scoring chance opportunity if Garnacho or Anthony or whoever else just played the ball across the last line, even if it wasn't a perfect ball. Um, And I think... In some of those cases, maybe one or two, perhaps it was more beneficial for them to do something else, like cut it back to a different player, or even try the shot themselves. Garnacho, I didn't actually mind the one where he hit the crossbar. I thought that was a pretty good effort. But then there were other ones where it was like very, very obvious that the chance that they ended up with was worse than if they just played the first time ball across to Hoyland. Um, and there were and there were many. As for the territory problem this is just a symptom of that you can see in premier league football of how strikers play versus where their teams are in the table um, and this is something i was talking about with ivan tony last week ivan tony provides tremendous value to brentford a team that cannot play short through high pressing opposition they don't have the personnel required to do that and so instead they look to take a more direct approach and they play longer balls and therefore it becomes more important to have a striker like Tony who can take down those balls and turn them into attacking possessions. Um, And that's a skill that, in theory, if Tony were to move to a top team, would still come up and would still be a viable second plan for teams to build through. But by and large, I would expect to see a lot less of the goalkeeper, the center backs, launching the ball up to Tony, expecting him to take it down and turn it into possession. Because a lot of top teams just don't build up that way a lot of the time. Because even when you have the best players in the world at it, it's it's still a high... Um, it's still a low accuracy game compared to being able to play through the opposition's midfield. Now, what, how that applies to Hoyland is United are worse this season. And so they're playing through teams less and therefore they're hitting the ball at Hoyland more. 
and it's raising the emphasis on Hoyland to be able to take these balls down and turn them into attacking possessions. Um, as opposed to, I think, it being a straight-up misuse of Hoyland, I actually think this is like a tactical issue. I don't think there's a striker you could have instead of Hoyland where you go, okay, we're going to now change our tactics so that we play the ball long to this striker every single time the center backs and the goalkeeper get the ball and try to get them to take it under control. I think regardless of what striker you have, United need to be looking at a game plan where they not necessarily don't have a target man, but only use the target man in specific scenarios that occur in short-range build-up play where the opposition press makes it more viable to then play a long ball to the striker than to try and play through it. Um, And in those scenarios, the accuracy trade-off becomes a reward because you're actually improving your accuracy by playing it long. And those scenarios happen, A, very rarely, and B, when you have multiple methods of building up so that the opposition can't actually predict which one you're going to use. But as soon as you commit to one and don't have the other, that's when these weaknesses start to come up. So long story short, that was a bit of a ramble, but I think... I don't think it's necessarily a case of misusing Hoyland. I think it's a case of the tactics being wrong and Hoyland being one of the victims of having to deal with the flawed tactical approach, basically. Like, I think he is, given his physical profile, he's not technically exploiting it as, as nearly as well as he could be. That's a, I think that can be addressed. I don't think that is a fundamental problem about him as a footballer. I think he can get better at that, and I think he will. He's he's 20. Is he 21 yet? Has he turned 21 yet? Anyway, point being, I, th- I have no problem with this role for Hoyland. I have problems with everything else around it more than anything else. And that's not to say that he's perfect in in the role. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I, I think this is a key thing. Playing into the channels for your striker only works if you widen out the channels, and the channels only widen out if you like are a threat to build through a team, um, because you don't push your fullbacks. Like uh, this is I I don't, I don't know that I can explain this visually uh, using words. I would I think I would need a tactics board for this, so maybe I'll, I'll put something out on Twitter. Basically. To effectively play into the channels, you need to isolate the center backs. You can't like leave a, a back line entirely intact across as a four-man or three-man back line. And United don't do that because their their primary approach at getting out of these situations is to go long. I, I wouldn't say like I don't think these again, it's it's a case of, you know, situation bias where I don't think necessarily that when you fix everything, Hoyland's gonna magically be the perfect striker. No, he certainly will I really won't. think no. yeah. if you fix a lot of the tactical issues, get to the point where you're dominating possession more often than not, dominating territory more often than not, playing through teams, consistent ball wins off the press, you're going to see a lot more goals from Hoyland and just a lot more satisfaction with how he's playing and a lot less focus on like the smaller aspects of his game. Not that they're unimportant, but broadly, I think that's the main issue. His role is defined by the circumstances that the team finds themselves in. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, okay, we've got one more question, and it's kind of related. Uh, this is from Stevia Superman. And Stevia Superman asks, Would United improve if they used a left footer on the left flank and a right footer on the right flank? A whole lot of our attack seems to rely on long balls out wide and crossing from the byline. Is cutting inside hurting the attack? Aaron, do you want to answer that first? Okay, maybe let's walk through like a brief history of footedness of wingers in top teams in Europe. So... Once upon a time, you had many teams like 
probably what you're used to with Ferguson's United, where they had wingers whose dominant foot was the wing they were playing on, so left-footed left-wingers or right-footed right-wingers, and then two strikers centrally. And then as time went on, there were a lot of players who coaches found tended to be threatening, coming in from wide areas to be attacking threats. Um, I think there was a greater emphasis on being able to provide numbers in midfield. A lot of teams went from two midfielders to three, and so therefore they couldn't afford to play a second striker. And so wingers started being closer to goal. And I think that is part of what drove the shift from primarily left-footed left-wingers, right-footed right-wingers to the opposite. Right-footed left-wingers, left-footed right-wingers, because it put them in positions where they would come inside onto their stronger foot and be able to influence the match that way, um, particularly in the half spaces and the or, or, or the channels. Um now, that being said, I don't think that the game now is free of examples of players who are dominant-footed on the wing that um, that is their stronger foot, so left-footed left-wingers or right-footed right-wingers, who do also have a great impact on goal scoring. And recently at United, we've seen a player like Garnacho actually have decent impact while playing as a right-footer on the right wing. I, I think I think my answer to this is, 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 a, is, a, is more simple. I, I, th- I think no. I, th- I think... It is much more beneficial for creation and goal scoring to have inverted wingers. I, I don't think touchline hugging wingers, barring very specific tactical solutions that allow you to still maintain the same like last line presence and central box threat, uh, work to the same degree that inverted wingers do. And I don't think Anthony and Garnacho are suited to volume crossing from from touchline and from the byline and also I don't think that's a good way to create chances I I think you want to keep your front three narrow so that you can generate more box threat and have other players coming and crossing on the overlap yeah and like obviously you can change that orientation but do you think like for instance United's midfielders or fullbacks are like if you do that if you push your wingers wide in order to still have the same box threat and last line occupancy, you have to either push your entire midfield three onto the last line or two of the three in central areas, or you have to push the fullbacks into the half spaces. And I don't really see that as an improvement in any way um, for, yeah, I don't see that as an improvement in any way for this side as, as a tactical solution. Yeah, and also I, I don't I don't really see the appeal of Anthony on the left. I think you have effective players to play on the left, and yeah, I would simply not use Anthony. I, I don't. Yeah, I I don't. I'm not intrigued by this idea, though. I understand where it comes from, given the conversation we just had about Hoyland. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. I mean, I I'm not averse to a system where the wingers are wider and the attacking midfielders become the central attacking threats alongside a striker. It can be but done. But that's just yeah. not how United play right now. I mean, it's... So, but, like, th- that makes it sound like you could change with the current personnel and it would work. Like, I think for that to work, you need to change a lot tactically that I don't think... I think we've, we've got much bigger problems than to just be, like, completely reshuffling our last line occupancy and... I don't know. I haven't seen anything from Garnacho and Anthony to think, like they're going to be great deep crossers. Um, like Garnacho's put in a few nice crosses, but in general, he just doesn't cross very much. 
Um, yeah, I think my answer would be regardless of whether it's a left footer on the left or a left footer on the right or right foot, right footers on either side. The main priority of the wingers in the side should be getting closer to goal as opposed yeah, to yeah, getting yeah. closer to the touchline. Um, I think that was basically the, the point of what I was the, saying. Oh, no, it's the touchline. Sorry. I keep on... Jeez, yeah. My brain is twisting them around. I mean, I, if they got to the byline, that's great. Yeah, the byline is what you I want. Mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think a lot of people look at that City side with Sané and Sterling and how wide they used to play. Um, because City were bringing their fullbacks inside and then pushing two attacking midfielders very high up the pitch to make penetrative runs that allowed them to then get the ball out to the wingers and then have these runs from midfielders. Um, and then they pass the ball beyond them to the to the attacking midfielder on the byline um, and open up cutback opportunities. And I think I I don't think that's like a bad model of playing the game. I just don't think it's how United side currently is structured. I think the way United side currently is structured is you get the fullbacks and the wingers to do the combinations in the wide areas and you and then you have um and then you have the cutbacks to central midfielders making late runs um essentially the fullbacks being the ones involved in the attack primarily instead of the uh attacking midfielders okay let's let's do one one quick question that i think is kind of going to tee up where we're going with the podcast for the rest of the season we'll still be talking about united as they're playing in real time but you and I, Aaron, have talked for the past few weeks about really digging into potential managerial replacements. And I do think we're going to do a series on that where we really dig into managers that intrigue us and why. So we've had a lot of people ask, right now, if you had to say your three favorites for the job, before we've properly done this deep dive, so we're, you know, huge mulligan here. You can absolutely change this answer later in the year, and I... I will also reserve that right. But if you had to say right now, your your top three replacement choices. How realistic does it have to be? Like, can I say Klopp? No. I think, I, I, yeah, I think it has <laughs> to be grounded in reality. Yeah. Um, okay. From the managers who currently do not have jobs, I'll pick my second and third choices, which are... Graham Potter and Hansi Flick. Um, and then I'll pick one that currently is in a job, which would be Nogglesman. But I mean, if I could pick managers who are in jobs at clubs lower than United, I think there are figures I could come up with who are closer to it than Potter and Flick in terms of being less of a risk. Um, some of those names would be, I haven't looked into Shabby Alonso, but I'm guessing Shabby Alonso. Um, I don't think that would happen anyways because of his ties to Liverpool. Um, Deserby, I think I have good things to say about Deserby. Um, I suppose, I, I suppose in Zaghi at Inter, I would look into Spalletti at formerly Napoli, now Italy. Um, I would look into Ruben Anarim uh, from Sporting. There are a couple names that are in the mix for the type of football they play generally and the level at which their teams have performed. And I think to get closer than that, I have to search more granularly. Um, but I, I still tend to think that Nogglesman would be my main choice. And I have reasons for that at this point. Yeah, I, I, 
first of all, that was way more than three. <laughs> so you kind of stole a few of mine, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I think for me, the top three in order is Nagelsmann, then Deserbi, and then there are a lot of guys who I would consider it three, but I think Potter. Uh, I, I still am very much a believer in Graham Potter. I do think he... Yeah, I, I still think he can do a very good job. Um, especially, I yeah. I mean, not that United is a is a better situation than Chelsea was, but I do think it was just really bad timing for him to... The I don't think any manager can effectively implement any, anything if they are hired and fired within the course of one season. I, so I, I still have a lot of... I'm still very much intrigued by him as a manager. Uh, that said, he would not be my first choice because obviously you just... You'd much rather have the guys who haven't failed than the guys who have failed. Obviously. That's like anything. Um, yeah. The Potter and Deserby thing is weird. Um, because I, so I think a lot of people who aren't perhaps following the statistics side of the game would, I mean, I I guess most of the people who remotely follow it are the people who listen to us anyways, but would maybe think that Potter wasn't actually that successful at Brighton because his teams didn't perform that high in the league. And then Brighton hired Deserby and immediately got better. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily boil it down to that. I don't think it's that simple. Deserby had better attackers. Some might argue that Potter could have had those attackers but didn't play them. But Deserby had better attacking quality. I also think Deserby inherited a lot of the good tactical work that was already done by Potter, which made it easier for him to implement on top of the base of strong pressing ability, strong ability to play throughout the back. Um, and then, you on know, the other you hand, Deserby. Be... Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, and then on the other hand, one could argue that Deserby benefited a lot from Potter, and who knows if he'd be able to implement tactics at the same level at United. Um, and then also that Brighton have an amazingly malleable squad of very, very tactically versatile players, which would be the question with both of them. But I actually don't think Grand Potter is that unlikely. I think in the past, Ineos had considered him as a as a potential manager for Nice. And so this isn't actually just like a random left field shout. I think it's actually something that is reasonably likely. Yeah, I I think the other, if Tuchel were were available, which I think is not out of the realm of possibility, though it sounds like he's already expressing interest in the Barcelona job, which is hilarious, um, I would be very interested in him. I think that would be another name that uh, constitutes a, a clear and obvious upgrade over what you currently have. Not the ceiling that I think would really excite me, but nobody is a, nobody except maybe Nagelsmann for me is a complete like yes I I I see this going well, uh, but that's partially yeah. because I've been very disillusioned by by this managerial spell uh, because I was very very high uh, coming into it so. Yeah, I think the thing for me with Nagelsmann is. He, and this is going to be very vague, but he consistently shows a penchant for trying things. And I think trying things at the top level is what differentiates like good possession coaches versus coaches that really find a solution that gets you to outplay teams by huge margins, which is what's currently leading to actual high end success in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, definitely. And I he think definitely I want to look more the adaptability this. test. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Or at least yeah. the in- adaptability, I, maybe not, but the in- willingness to innovate test. I want to look into specifically changes that have worked for him versus not worked for him because I think in the Bundesliga, he's coached teams that were strong enough that he could largely get away with the changes that did not work and he flew when the changes did work. Um, so I'd want to look into that in more detail, but for now, I would say I would rather have a coach that is willing to try different things um, on top of an established strong model of playing the game than a coach who's going to get to a certain point and just kind of leave it there and not take risks that could elevate the team to a higher level. Basically just be a guaranteed fourth, third place team. Um, ultimately, I think Ineos will improve the situation a lot, but not so much so that United will be able to just play the game the way, like play a play a low risk game and beat City season over season. I think they really have to think bold and they'll get to a level where they have to think very big if they want to actually reach the level of teams like City and Klopp's Liverpool. Um, so yeah, that's why I'd pick a coach like Nagelsmann or Deserby over someone who doesn't take any risks. Whew. It really feels like we are at the bottom of a mountain. You know? Um, kind of. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I just... I have no idea what this, this summer has in store for us in terms of how much you believe in Barada, how much you believe in Ineos. When, if at all, is there a managerial change? Um, there's a lot up in the air. It is very difficult to project out the future right now. So Yeah, it's sort of weird. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as the bottom of the mountain. I think I'd describe it as like a very foggy spot on the mountain where I can't actually tell how high or low we are on the mountain. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Like, I think... I think you are a couple decisions away from being a very good team again and competitive going into next season, but then also a couple decisions away from being a total wreck and outside the top 10 of the Premier League. Um, Just because of how good the squad is and how dysfunctional the coaching setup has been. And so I think that makes it really odd to predict and analyze as fans. What are you listening to, Aaron? All music? Yeah. I've been listening to tons of stuff. Um, I told you to listen to the new Kali Uchis album, mostly because I thought you would like it. Yes, I was already listening to it as we as we. Um, I have mentioned that I'm seeing the Eagles and Steely Dan in yeah. March, so I've been listening to lots of both of them. Um, I've also been listening to I'm seeing Chicago and Earth, Wind, and Fire in the summer. So listening to lots of Chicago and Earth, Wind, and Fire as well. So lots of like of older rock. music. Yeah. yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, there haven't been a ton of huge highlights of the music I've been listening to. Nothing new that I thought was absolutely amazing or super well known. And I've also been listening to Wallows. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're pretty good, honestly. I, I enjoyed the album of theirs that I've been that I've had on repeat which is Nothing Happens. Yeah, um, that's the one that I have and, saved off of. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's good. Um, I have no idea how good the rest of their discography is. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working full-time and have a lot of coding work to do in this job, so I just switch on a lot of different albums and queue them up and then listen, as well as podcasts, actually. That's good. Yeah, you told me you've got a lot of like uh, transit time getting in and out. Of yeah, work, that too. So. That I've been using for Netflix. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, how about you? Um, yeah, so I've been listening to, let's see, 
have you listened to Teo's new album? Teo is uh, T-E-O question mark. There's also an upside down question mark that I do not know the word for in English. I think it's just upside down question mark that precedes his name. I have not, but this... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've heard of... Is it him? But I have not listened to... So you should listen to his new album because I I think there's a few songs on there you might like. Um, So I'm listening to that. It's not that new, I don't think. Um, 2023. Yeah. So yeah, it's not that new. Not that new. Um, and then otherwise, I think I've mentioned I've recently gone back to Kendrick Lamar's most recent album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Um, fantastic. I've, I've It's really grown on me. When it first came out, I wasn't in love with it like I was his earlier work. But now I think it's 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 delivered on re-listenability uh, for me. And then also Bomba Estadio. Have I have I have we talked about them? You'd recognize them because like a couple, a couple of their songs were on like the FIFA playlist back when we were adolescents. Okay. Um, but yeah, they've got two awesome albums, uh, Deja and Amanecer, um, that are both very good, um, very good vibes. Yeah. My friend, I was visiting my friend in New York city a couple weeks ago and she was like, Oh, I'm listening to them. And I was like, Oh wow. I haven't listened to them in probably a decade. So, uh, got me back into it, which is always nice. Like when you, uh, rediscover something that it feels distant, um, in that way. So we got another no details question. This is from James Rolanti and he asks, uh, what are your favorite movie franchises? Oh, wow. I'm not like a sequels person. So usually when it becomes a franchise, I, 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 agree, I start yeah. to lose interest. Um, I mean, it's hard not to say Toy Story, but even then I think they've made too many now. I, I haven't actually seen Lightyear, but the four before that were, I, I mean, I always loved those growing up. Um, I'm trying to think of others where, like, I felt that they maintained a... How, how many movies does it have to be for it to be a franchise? I think three, but we'll, we'll, we'll allow two if you've got something that's, you know... Uh... I mean, I liked... Relatedly, I liked both The Incredibles movies. But, like, I can't think of... I can't think of many... Um, I have been waiting to watch this... I'm so late on this, but the Across the Spider-Verse... Um, because Into the Spider-Verse was fantastic. So I'm I'm... I'm sure Across the Spider-Verse is also really good. Um, and I'm sure that would be on my list if I had gone and watched it. But. Yeah, you you really, really need to go see that. <laughs> because it is it is one of the best animated, like in terms of the animation, the animation is beautiful. At like the very least, it's worth going to see for that. Um, yeah, I have no doubt in my mind. Like it, it, even the first one, I was floored in the theater. Like it was really, really good. So yeah, I'm excited to watch it. I just haven't had the chance. Uh, but I'm struggling to think of other franchises, especially like non-animated ones. I feel like most really, really good live-action movies do not get sequels, and there's a reason for that. It's just hard to recreate two more hours of something that good. Yeah, I think the good ones are typically the ones that were planned as multiple films. Like, for instance, Lord of the Rings is the first one that comes to mind for me. I adore the Lord of the Rings yeah. movies. Um Otherwise, have you? This is kind of stretching the answer, but have you seen uh, the Three Flavors Cornetto film trilogy? I haven't. Okay, you you might know the actual individual films because they're barely a series. They're actually like kind of retroactively a series because the director, like, basically there was like a cult following of the films, and then the director noticed it and decided to kind of tie them together. Um, and so the movies are uh, Hot Fuzz which you may have heard of, Shaun of the Dead and The World's End. 
and they're all like they sh- they have the same lead actor they have um same director obviously um and like similar setting um which i think is like the english midlands uh very fun movies they're like action comedy adventures uh but completely ridiculous hot fuzz i think is the best of the three uh which i honestly is just like a great watch on its own yeah that does sound pretty good we said we'd upload every week and we are and so hopefully we'll be rewarded with some interesting things to talk about next week who are united playing next wolves west ham definitely not going to be awful matches wolves west ham. i don't know what you're talking <laughs> about case wolves west ham villa luton town fulham i'm sure the football will be riveting oh man that like brief good 20 minutes against luton will be nice all right yeah i think on that note we'll see we'll, we'll see you guys up. next week yep see you Aaron. hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details you can follow us at devils itd pod on twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms our awesome theme music was made by jacob connor you can find at jacob j connor on twitter have a great week and we'll see you next time